Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with David Blood. David is the co-founder and a senior partner of Generation Investment Management, a sustainably focused investment management house managing $40 billion worth of assets. David's background includes serving as the CEO of Goldman Sachs Asset Management on a global basis. In this podcast, we talk to David about the global equity solution that they provide, which has in Australian dollars, a compound annual growth rate of 12.3% over the last 10 years versus the index performance of 8.85%. I think you'll enjoy this insight from a global leader in the space, and I think you'll find it very valuable. You're reminded that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it specific or general advice, and people are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the back of the podcast. You are, however, encouraged to keep your feedback coming through. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. David Blood, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. That was one of my favorite names, actually. Yeah, there we go. We should get in, uh, we should get along well. Um, perhaps you could start us off by giving the listeners a background as to who you are. Okay. Well, um, I think the, the the story I'd like to, to share with you is uh, I'm probably the least likely person to be in finance. So when I uh, went to university, I was interested in being uh, either a teacher. My mom was a teacher or a forest ranger. I grew up in the middle park of the United States with very much of an outdoor person and uh, I, I aspired to be a, a, actually a football coach and, and as I said, teacher. And uh, when I went to school, I spent the first couple of years in the education program and then suddenly, unbeknownst to me, they canceled the education program. So I had to look around for a new major and I actually chose uh, child psychology which incidentally is the perfect major to manage investment managers and investment bankers and uh, got my degree in psychology. But the challenge was that I couldn't get a job. So I actually applied to uh, the Peace Corps. Uh, the Peace Corps is a volunteer group, and I was rejected for that, which was kind of a blow to my ego. I applied to get a, a doctorate in psychology, and no one would take me. So I, I basically was graduating and didn't have a job. And my dad uh, phoned me and said, well, you know, you you can't just come home. You've got to get a job. And you should apply to banks because they hire people like you. And I'm pretty sure that that wasn't a compliment. I don't think he was thinking good thoughts. Uh, so I applied to 70 banks in the United States in the early 80s, and I was rejected by 69 of the 70. But I got one yes, and that's how I got into finance. And it turns out that I was pretty good with numbers, as it happens. I'm, I'm dyslexic, so uh, that, that was a good thing that I could, could do numbers and, and have had a, a pretty interesting career over the course of nearly 40 years in, in finance. Terrific. What a great story and background. Tell me a little bit about that career in finance. So my uh, initial job was at Bankers Trust in, uh, in New, York, New York City. I was... Um, a kid from the Midwest turned up in the big city. Um, I had really no idea what it was like to, to, to live in New York and uh, was in retail banking, but ultimately uh, went through a, a credit training program and did very well in that credit training program. And that propelled me into an opportunity to go to the Harvard Business School 
and uh, had a pretty good success at the Harvard Business School. And I, I ultimately, after I graduated, started at Goldman Sachs and spent uh, 18 years at Goldman Sachs doing a number of different things, in, including uh, debt capital markets, equity capital markets. I was treasurer of the, the firm. I spent some time in investment banking, uh, but ultimately got involved in um, the asset management business and have been in asset management uh, mostly as a leader of a business as opposed to a capital allocator uh, since uh, 1996, so a long while. Now, if I'm right, I think uh, you might sell yourself a little short there, but you actually ran the global asset business for Goldman Sachs. Is that correct? Uh, that is true. That is true, ultimately. So, so that's a big job and a lot of people and a lot of capital, right? You might want to give our listeners just you know a few numbers that sort of – give them the scope of that? Well, I think it, uh, at the time I left uh, Goldman Sachs Asset Management, we had something like 2,000 people and $250 billion worth of assets under management. It's quite a bit uh, larger now, I'm, I'm, I'm very sure. Uh, but what I was involved in doing at, at Goldman Sachs Asset Management is helping to build the firm, so uh, build the asset management business. Uh, Goldman Sachs uh, was extremely established in investment banking and private wealth management and uh, sales and trading, but not very well established in asset management. And so I, along with a, a handful of other uh, senior leaders, helped to build the, the asset management business. And so I've always considered myself actually as a business builder, as an entrepreneur or, or an entrepreneur within within a business. And, and so that's I, th I think if I have any skills, that might be the, the skill I bring. So Goldman Sachs is known as a fantastic organization, a real leadership in that investment banking and asset management. Why did you leave? Well, uh, it's a very important question in so many ways. Um, I, I joined Goldman Sachs because of uh, its, its core culture and core values, its business principles. And, uh, and there, there are lots of reasons why culture is very important to me, but I, I felt that the Goldman Sachs culture really was driven around teamwork and, uh, and commitment to clients was something that I would prosper in. And, and I was very fortunate to have done, to have done well. Uh, but I also was one of the partners who felt that as the firm got bigger and the, the idea of going public was something that I was increasingly uncomfortable with. And so when Goldman Sachs voted to go or the partners voted to go public, I actually voted no. And what that really meant was that uh, I was signaling certainly to myself that, that my career at Goldman Sachs was going to come to an end. And after – I think the firm ultimately went public in 1999 and left in 2003. And I left because uh, it was going to be a firm that I didn't really recognize anymore. And it, by the way, Goldman Sachs continues to be an extraordinary organization. And I, uh, Goldman Sachs going public is why Generation was able to get started. And uh, so I have nothing but good things to say about Goldman Sachs. But for me, it was time to go do something different. And my uh, thinking around sustainability and thinking around uh, going back to that story about being a teacher had never never ended. I've been quite interested in social justice since I was 11 or 12 years old living in South America. And it, it was clear to me that the world needed to do things differently from a capital allocation perspective. And we, we ultimately concluded that, that 
building a firm based on uh, a commitment to long-term investing, building a firm based on a commitment to sustainability and in the importance of it to economies and to success of societies, and a firm that would use uh, environmental social governance factors within an investment process, a rigorous traditional investment process, might be able to create a framework that uh, allowed the, the investment uh, decisions to be or encourage the investment decisions to be uh, better o- over time. And, and that's what we've been trying to do. And we've been fortunate to, to have done that. So you almost led and stole into my question of, uh, you know, why did you set up Generation Capital? Um, but you've answered to that. So, so perhaps you could tell us what the organization looks like now. So we, we founded the firm with uh, seven partners and another 10 folks. And so there were 17 of us that, that established the firm. And uh, one thing I wanted to share with you is that we, we, we did two things uh, that, that have really set us uh, well for the, the years uh, or set us well for the years that to, to have come. And one was we spent a long time trying to develop our investment process. The people who founded Generation were people who had both traditional investment experience and people who uh, had sustainability knowledge. And we, we tried to meld that together because we thought that that would give us the best chance of delivering strong risk-adjusted returns. And we actually worked for uh, nearly, well, really nearly two years from the first idea of starting generation to finally taking third-party capital. And the reason why we did that is that it was hard to bring investment professionals together with sustainability experts. And so that notion of, of bringing the disciplines together was core to, and it is core to how we operate our firm. And secondly, the mission the core values and how we work, we felt that that was going to be critical to really talk that through and agree it. And so we actually spent nearly a week uh, early on debating what, how we wanted to work together, what was important to us, and, and what the mission we, we wanted to have. And, and that set us on, on the path of, of how we were going to build a generation. We actually have done that twice since then. So we did it right when we found the firm. We did it again in 2013 or so because we went from sort of 17 folks to 60 people. And we actually uh, had another discussion. Uh, uh, well, I guess it was October of 2021 where we now have 100 people if you will. And the reason why we go through that is, A, we're checking ourselves to be sure that we feel that the mission and, and the culture is, is, is what we want it to be. And secondly, because as we've grown, not everybody was there on that first conversation. And we want to give people a sense that it's their firm, it's our collective firm. And the way to do that is to talk about why we're doing what we're doing. Generation is certainly a mission-driven organization. We want to be excellent investors, but we also want to promote sustainability in the capital markets. And and actually, the the first allows us to do the second. So if we're pedestrian investors, then who's going to care about our, our advocacy voice or what we're trying to accomplish from a, a broader mission perspective? So we, it means that we are clearly focused on delivering strong investment results for our clients because it allows us to do uh, the, the broader mission of promoting sustainability in capital markets. Now, David, I think if I'm right, you founded the fund with Al Gore and Al Gore, and he may still be involved in the fund. Can you tell us how that helped and how that hindered? 
So uh, Al, uh, there's seven founders. Al is one of the founders. He remains the the chair of the firm and is an active uh, partner of mine and 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 ours. Uh, it came about because uh, he was working with uh, Goldman Sachs uh, about actually buying a, a firm called Sustainable Asset Management, or he was interested in buying a firm called Sustainable Asset Management, and Goldman Sachs didn't want to do that merger it was going to be 40 million dollars or something like that so this was after i had announced to my partners that i was retiring to set up a sustainable investing firm which certainly caught folks uh, off guard i'd say and so my boss at the time uh, phil murphy who is actually now the governor of the state in jersey phoned me up and said look um we're not going to be able to help uh uh, the vice president, but we would like for you to go help him. You're supposed to know something about asset management and you claim your interest in sustainability. So would you go and help him? And uh, so I, I went to Boston with our business plan, not because I wanted him to be our partner, but because it was a good example of how you either build a firm or, or buy a firm. And as we talked that day in, in Boston, we realized two things that has also set generation on, I think, a pretty important course. The first was if we could bring together a financial expertise, assuming that I had that, plus uh, his knowledge of sustainability and policy, we could create a really interesting uh, a sort of knowledge set, if you will. And so we've tried to create that or recreate that across our entire firm over the course of these last nearly 20 years. And secondly, from a sustainability perspective, my interest has always been in poverty and in social justice and, and Al's is, is obviously climate. And what we realized, it was the same coin, just different sides. And so that together has allowed us to sort of think about how we, we broadly assess sustainability. The, the challenge was uh, people still, certainly in the United States, think that Al is a politician. He hasn't been in politics for 23 years. Uh, but that means that actually uh, working with Al uh, with U.S. clients can sometimes be less good because there's still acrimony and there is – not still. There is acrimony in the United States politically. But outside the United States, he's – He's considered a statesman. And so uh, I would say over the years, we have deployed Al more outside the U.S. than inside the U.S. But very importantly, Al is not a door opener. Al is a important voice in terms of how we have built our firm, our strategy, and importantly, the, the broader notion of how we're thinking about sustainability. David, why should people think about sustainability as a source of extra return rather than thinking about, well, I'll do my philanthropy and my good over here, but the way I'll do the most good is by making the most amount of money. And I might make the most amount of money in the short term, I think you'd say, or not in a sustainable way, you know, in some other methodology, but then separate that. Well, it's a great question, David. And uh, I think often, even in, going back to your question of w what has been a challenge, um, it, 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 the the challenge of of Al was he's considered a politician. The challenge of sustainability is that it's considered a political action or a political agenda as opposed to uh, a business agenda. And what we've tried very hard to do is to say, no, let's talk about the business case. Why are we 
incorporating sustainability and ESG into our investment process. We're doing so because we think it will make us better investors. We believe that this investment framework with a, a, a context of a, of a long-term orientation will allow us to deliver better investment results for our clients versus not, which also means that um, we're both fiduciaries. We are fulfilling our fiduciary duty. This is not trading values for value. We are not uh, risking our responsibility to manage the capital of our clients or to advise on the capital of our clients. In fact, just the opposite. We believe that people who do not consider sustainability or ESG in their investment processes are not fulfilling their fiduciary duty. David, I've heard you talk about what you think the next 10 years is going to look like. I'm interested in you to share that view with the listeners, please. The the, the challenge that, that we, we face is uh, the, the world is, is beginning to make an important transformation. We need to decarbonize our economy. We need to think differently in terms of how we're operating communities. Uh, the, the challenge of inequality, the challenge of poverty is rising. It's not, not setting. And, and the whole question of nature, these are all issues that are 20 years ago were important. They're now being magnified. And so our, our view is that we're going to need to fundamentally change how we're allocating capital, how we're running our economies, how we're running our businesses over the course of the next five to 10 years. Or if we don't, we're not going to achieve the sustainable development goals. We're not going to achieve the objective of limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees C or less. And we're going to in many ways, destroy the, the nature that we rely on. So we, we feel that we need to make a different sort of set of capital allocations. We absolutely believe that this is a significant investment opportunity as well as a risk. We think if, if we don't do this, uh, we will be running economic risk and, and price risk in, in, in securities. And so this is really about best practice business. This is best practice. Uh, this is why sustainability is important. And we think it's about deploying capital in a way that that clients will, will benefit from. Ultimately, we would say that the the urgency of this challenge is is so acute that it needs to to fundamentally change and accelerate over the course of the next five to ten years or else we, we won't get there. So we've said clearly that the next 10 years will be the most important in our careers and that's from a, uh, a research perspective and a capital allocation perspective. Now, we're also optimistic. There are a number of things that, that would you could point to that could make you sad and, and frustrated, but fundamentally, the change, the technology change, the policy change in the United States and the geopolitical change in Europe gives us a huge sense of confidence and a huge tailwind that we will actually be able to make significant progress over the course of the next five years or so. And David, you're down. You're in town in Australia, Sydney. I'm talking to you at the moment from London, and we've been talking about the international fund or the global fund. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of that and what it seeks to do? So, the, the global equity fund was actually our first uh, strategy. Uh, we we chose global equity, public equity, because we felt that that was the 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 type of strategy that people would be most interested in and that would give us the opportunity to be advocates of, of sustainability. And that fund is now, gosh, nearly 20, 20 years old and we've been um, been maybe lucky, but we've been fortunate to be, be successful from an investment perspective. And what that is doing is 
buying a concentrated number of, of companies. 43 are in the portfolio today. And what we're trying to deliver is a portfolio that will both be interesting from a long-term investment perspective, as well as a portfolio that is lower carbon than the market, a portfolio that is trying to be part of the solution. And we think of the, of the, the broader objective or solution is to drive to a net zero, healthy, fair, clean, and prosperous society. And the, we think that the businesses that we are investing in will help us do that. And am I right in thinking the fund's about $20 billion and you manage about $40 billion in total? Is that somewhere around the ballpark? Uh, that it's, uh, that we, we typically don't answer that question, but it's about $25 billion and uh, $43 billion of asset center management. And can you just, given I think that about 75% of the assets are in the, the U.S. and most of the companies of that fund, I'm interested to know what the you know, the outlook or, or the pulses, if you'd like, uh, in the US. Can you talk to us about, I, I think I, I've sensed that there's been a bit of ESG backlash and at the same time, there's an Inflation Reduction Act and, and what that means for opportunities in your investment set. Yes. So the first thing I, I, I need to be sure, David, you you know, or our listeners know is that while we do have about 75% of the portfolio in the U.S. today, that could change. So we, we don't have a view that we should overweight the United States or any other market. It's a bottoms-up stock selection, and it could easily be different in, in a different period of time. Uh, but uh, we would absolutely say that the Inflation Reduction Act is a significant change in the trajectory of, of how the United States will decarbonize. And we see very significant, and in, in, in because it's something in the order of $350, $360 billion, we see a pathway to decarbonize the, the, the American economy and actually achieve what, we, what the United States said it would do for uh, the Paris Accord, so which is cutting carbon emissions very significantly, 43%, something like that, over the course of the next five to 10 years. So it is a very, very big deal. And in, in the companies that we've, uh, we were investing in the United States and globally, we think we'll take advantage of that. I think it's also fair to say that the tragic war in Ukraine has a silver lining, which is the Europeans for both geopolitical and, um, and, and energy security reasons are going to decarbonize much more quickly than they would have otherwise. And so actually the world has a, a very significant tailwind as we're thinking about the transition to, to net zero with, frankly, not a moment too, too soon. There, we really are going to have to make very, very significant uh, adjustments to how we're, we're operating our economies over the course of the next five to ten years if we want to limit global temperature rise. And in terms of uh, an ESG backlash or and oh. greenwashing and those type of things, what are you seeing in the U.S.? Uh, that's a really a, a important point. I, I apologize for for not addressing it. So the the reason why we are seeing ESG backlash in the United States is because uh, we should see a backlash. One, the the definition of sustainability and ESG is all over the place. Uh, I think if you ask 10 people, you'd get 11 or 12 different answers in terms of what it is. Uh, unfortunately, there's uh, some number of people who are saying one thing and doing something else, which is greenwash. That's both companies, but more importantly, investors are doing that. Uh, and I think regulators as well as the uh, 
the broader populace is quite upset about that, and as well they should be. Thirdly, there's um, there, sometimes the data is poor, and and frankly, there's a sense that 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 we're that basically the ESG scores are are clearly um, accurate and and or sacrosanct, and they're not. Is ESG and sustainability does not lend itself to a score. It does not lend itself, frankly, to an index, and and that's confusing to people. So there's been a, a lot of discussion around um, Tesla, which a generation doesn't own, but uh, there was a, a instance where it was removed from an indice, and it was removed from an indice because it was overweighting. Its uh, its governance challenges and or its 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 approach to to its people, and ignoring the fact that Tesla has fundamentally changed the way we think about mobility, and and that is I think a great example of of the the challenges of trying to put a score on on ESG. But the last point is that there is a sense that ESG or sustainability can solve the world's problems. It cannot. We need sustainable investing. We need our economies to be more sustainable, but we also need policy. We certainly need guardrails or regulation, and we need civil society to be part of this this solution. So it's there's a backlash, frankly, in the United States because it's kind of political. But uh, overall, we welcome the 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 drive to raise standards. And we do need to, and if you if you ask us what we're focused on over the course of the next 10 years, is to actually bring greater rigor to sustainability and ESG, greater sense of what it means, better emphasis on data and reporting, and frankly, an understanding that impact uh, is going to be critical to how we think about capital allocation. And David, have capital markets spoken and already move in an irrevocable way? Or do you think there's a risk that as if the economy falls on harder times, we get higher inflation, um, higher unemployment, that people might start reversing out their decisions of years ago that, yes, we're going to go carbon zero, but now, well, it's a bit harder to make a profit or otherwise? Well, there's always risk of of backsliding. Uh, no question about that, and you've seen some of that over the course of of the last last year. There's there's voices that have said, "Oh my goodness, it's going to be very very difficult to achieve 1.5 degrees C temperature rise or less." Uh, there's some number of people saying, "Well, you know what? We're going to need, we're just going to need the uh, hydrocarbons for the next 50 years, so we're just going to continue to produce it." Um, it turns out that generation had a more difficult year in 2022. So that's an example of sustainability can't possibly be uh, be a good investment strategy. And, and so there's, there's always going to be background noise. The fundamentals, though, is that we are going to transition to net zero. That, that, that ship is sailed. We're on that. And the, as, as I mentioned, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States – tells you that that is happening. The, the geopolitical challenges in Europe means that it is happening. And uh, we are long-term investors. We're, we're not going to be, uh, I, I think, influenced by any given quarter or any given year in terms of, of performance or, or cyclicality, if you will, in terms of what's in, in, in favor, what's not. I think the, it's a critical point of investing is to understand what you're trying to do and set your eyes on the horizon and just go there. Take 
judgments as to whether you've made mistakes and and certainly constantly evaluate uh, the decision-making process, but keep your eye on the horizon and, and, and make your decisions with that in, that in mind. And being a long-term investor, understanding the drivers of change, which are sustainability principally, and understanding what drives the quality of business, quality of management, that is not going out of favor. That is actually best practice investing. Now, David, I think a lot of people listening to this, and we haven't spoken in many specifics, and I know you want to steer away from specific companies, which we can do, but I was surprised when I looked through the portfolio in the global equities portfolio, and I was kind of expecting you to be invested in the new and latest, greatest technology company that was, you know, sequestering carbon or capturing or some technology that's a moonshot. However, I was surprised to see many of the names were large industrial companies. Can you just talk a little bit about how you think about that? It's a great question, David, and it's, it's important because when we talk about decarbonizing the economy, people just really go to, well, it, it's just about climate or it's just about the energy complex. And it's much, much, much more than that. Everything that we've done today will need to change. That's there, Therefore, this is agriculture which is important here in Australia. It is uh, consumers, uh, what we're buying, and are we buying fast fashion? It's the whole question of, of financial institutions and are they financing uh, businesses that are helping to decarbonize? The whole question of healthcare, and of course, the industrial sector and, and technology. So it's a lot of what we're, we're looking at is, is a systems view. What do we need as a system, as a society, to drive to a net zero, fair, healthy, prosperous, and, and safe society? So that's how we're building the portfolio. We're not just saying, oh, let's just think about uh, how we're going to industrialize uh, or how we're going to electrify the, uh, the, the grid. That is an important question. Actually, it may be the most important question in some respects, but what we're trying to do as a, a equity global equity fund is to invest in all aspects of society so that the broader portfolio is driving to a, a, a more sustainable world. Well, David, I'm conscious of time and you've been very generous with it. What should I have asked that I haven't asked? Oh, that is, whoa, that is a very good question. Um, I think you should ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic. And since you're giving me the chance to answer my own question, yep. uh, we're very, very optimistic. The, 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 there is, as I said earlier, there's reasons that one could be pessimistic, but we, we've seen a lot over 20 years. We've made a lot of progress and we now have the tools to decarbonize our economy. We have the tools to drive to a just transition. We are now increasingly aware of the importance of nature. We just need the the will the will the willingness, frankly, to act. And it is hard, no question about it. Uh, but just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it. Terrific, David. I, I really enjoy that. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. It's, I think it's quite inspirational. I love what you're doing. I can hear my son who will be listening to this and editing it, who only a couple of weeks back said, Dad, you know, I like this economics things and he's a sub-major in psychology, um, third year university, you know, 21. Uh, listeners to the show will be familiar with Josh editing it. Um, he, he came to me and said, look, you know, I, you know, I, don't, I don't mind this investment stuff that you're doing and all of this, but I actually want to make a difference. How do I go about doing that? Who do I need to talk to? And then, you know, the, the younger one 
Lucy that listeners wouldn't have heard about. You know, she's doing her major on sustainable fashion at the moment. So uh, you're obviously making a difference and one of the people moving the needle. So uh, thank you very much for your time, your efforts, um, and thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. Well, thank you very much. And, and tell Josh and Lucy they're doing good stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.